I wanted to end the year to create the last podcast episode and series of blog posts about things that I learned this year. What were the most impactful things that stuck out with me? What are the things that I saw over and over again in the things that I read and the things that I wrote and the things that I listened to? And I came up with a uh, set of things that were common in my Evernote lists. I went through all of the notes that I took in Evernote and there were these 9 to 12 things that just came up over and over and over again. And so on the blog, thewaiterspad.com, and in this podcast episode, I'm going to be going over those things that I saw again and again that really seemed to be important. Ready? One. The first thing was to be different. This came up, I think, because of my focus on investors and investing. And there's this adage in investing that if you want to be better than the market, you have to be different than the market. And this will come up again and again in the podcast you listen to with investors. They understand that you, you don't want to pay a premium for someone who is a closet indexer. But I think this is true for many different businesses. It's not like Five Guys or Shake Shack or In-N-Out Burger succeed because they're the same to McDonald's. They succeed because they're different from McDonald's. And this is actually what Danny Meyer did when he created his restaurants in New York City. In his book, Setting the Table, he writes that he wanted to emulsify tastes. He wanted to find things that had never succeeded in New York before or hadn't succeeded in the way that he envisioned. We can look at what Meyer did in New York City and we can see that in hindsight that works. But while you're doing this, the journey can be very lonely. You're going to be on your own. In the blog post that accompanies this part of the podcast, I compared it to being in a race with a seven-year-old. When my seven-year-old says, Dad, let's race, we race, but she doesn't tell me where the finish line is. She's the only one that knows the finish line. And so she always wins these races. And in some ways, this is what the investors and the entrepreneurs and the authors do. They have their own race they're running but that's a lonely race you don't have people around you indicating that you're going in the right direction Scott Fearon wrote a book about what it's like to be a short seller called Dead Company Walking. And in that book, he writes that you have to be a cynic and you have to be willing to go against the grain. You have to be willing to be alone to do that. Jason Calacanis warned that angel investors can't invest in the obvious thing. Meb Favor said that Me Too funds will too often fail. And Mark Andreessen said to look beyond the non-obvious. So, to be different means to be uncomfortable, and that doesn't always pay off. For example, one way to do this is to start a new ketchup brand. That's what Scott Norton did, and that's really a non-obvious thing to do. When people think about startups or new companies or new ventures, starting a ketchup company doesn't seem like it's something that would be a wise thing to do, but Scott Norton has had some success doing it. Mark Andreessen would tell you to look at the fringe groups, look at what people are doing on the weekends or what people have as a hobby and, and use that to kind of guide you what might be the next big thing. Sometimes you won't have a thing. Sometimes you'll try to be different or you'll look for something different and there's nothing there. Alex Bloomberg said this is why Gimlet Media doesn't have a sports podcast. They aren't really different enough. That landscape is so filled with people. There's so many services provided and 
holes being filled. That There's nothing for the Gimlet brand to add yet. They're going to keep looking, Bloomberg says, and they're going to keep trying. But right now, there's no reason to jump into that. Another way to find different things is to remix existing things. This is what Ken Burns did when he did his first Civil War documentary. He remixed history and music and slideshows and narration. And he combined all of these things that we're used to in one form, but not the documentary form. Alton Brown said that his moment of remix was when he saw Julia Child, Mr. Wizard, and Monty Python. And he wondered, what if I made a cooking show that combined all of those different elements? And that's why he succeeded. Being different isn't a silver bullet. The thing that you're different about still has to be excellent. When Jen Hyman founded Rent the Runway, she tested her idea on her sister and her friends in college. So it wasn't just, this is something different, but it was, this is something different that people actually want. Marketers like Scott Galloway and Ryan Holiday say that when people ask them marketing tips about their business, their first piece of advice is to have something that people really want to buy, and then you can worry about marketing. And when you find something different, if you create something different, you have to realize that that difference is only going to be temporary. Other people are going to join what was that one-person race. Edges don't remain, said Ed Thorpe. Sports is a petri dish full of examples from Jeff Lulo at the Houston Astros to Daryl Morey at the Houston Rockets to a bunch of different GMs and executives in the NFL. Being different will always be hard, and sometimes it will be valuable. Two. Two books that I read early in 2017 were A Field Guide to Lies and How to Lie with Statistics. And the former is really just an update of the latter with some new, fun, anecdotal examples. But both books were really good in pointing out ways that we make mistakes. And so the second thing I tried to internalize and learn this year was to trust but verify. Feelings are not facts, said Ray Dalio, Ken Burns, and wrote Travis Sawchick. Each of those people encourages us to move from the world we expect to the world that exists. Included in our basket of feelings are opinions, biases, inclinations, and ideas. We have to test our stuff that we believe. One repeated verification method is out-of-sample tests. This test, said Cliff Asness, is very calming, and Ray Dahlia suggested we find data that is timeless and universal, things that exist in one field and another. For investors, this is testing things in a different period of time or in a different market. We don't tend to do that. Instead, we get tripped up. Extrapolation was a common downfall this year in podcasts, especially in sports. Blowout wins, for example, in college football are a really poor predictor of how a team will rank in the final season rankings. Other times, we need to verify how much numbers really matter. Ben Sass said that when he was president of a university, they noticed that one school had a 40 to 1 student to teacher ratio and another school had 300 to 1. And so they surveyed the students that were in these different classes and they found out that neither of those ratios really matter that much. You know, 300 
compared to 40 is almost an order of magnitude larger, but it doesn't really matter so long as there's, as Sass says, five nerds doing all the talking. The experience for the students is mostly the same, so even though the numbers are quite different, the actual difference is relatively small. Numbers, too, like 99%, can be misleading. When John Urschel was on the Freakonomics podcast, he expressed doubt about brain damage in the NFL. Not that it wasn't happening, but that it was happening at a different pace or rate than what some early studies had predicted. Urschel pointed out that there's probably a sampling bias in people who are volunteering to have CT scans done. Other times we get data that we have to verify, but it's for a complicated system. And a lot of investors mentioned this year that if you see something complicated, if you're sold something complicated, that's probably more marketing than anything else. Ideally, we get to control the data that we're using. This is what Ben Fox said happens in practices for the Philadelphia 76ers basketball team. That team will track three-point shots made during practice, and once the players prove themselves in practice, they can get the green light during the game. Data control is also what sent Esther Duflo into the field. She was concerned that too much foreign aid was assigned by demand or supply wallas. Walla in this book is uh, it's an Indian term for uh, a person involved with a specific thing, and Duflo thought that politicians were either demand or supply wallas, and they were letting that belief, that philosophy, influence their decisions rather than collecting the data. They were trusting their philosophy rather than verifying it with facts. When John Montgomery was interviewed by Barry Ritholtz, Ritholtz asked him what led him away from market cap weighting in some of his investments, and Montgomery said, research. It's a funny moment in their podcast because of the way he gives the deadpan answer, but it really uh, proves the point Montgomery was trying to make, is that sometimes you just need to look at the data rather than follow what you believe. The Nike running team did this with Eliud Kipchoge when they tried to break the two-hour time for a marathon. And they did this because they measured his oxygen consumption, and they measured his gait, and they checked his diet. And he was doing all of those things well, but the team wanted to verify that he was on the right track. This doesn't even get into our biases, which the GMs that I wrote about came up with some creative ways to get around them. Like, if you have subjective evaluations, that you can rank order those, and that'll help get around your subjective biases. Infinite verification is impossible, but basic verification is not. A few calculations or internet searches can give us some idea whether or not to trust or verify more. Three. Readers are curious. Entrepreneurs are curious. Juvenile delinquents are curious. Yvonne Chenard, the founder of Patagonia, pointed out this idea, and it appears again and again. Each of these people wants the world to exist in a different form. When the college dropout codes a technology pillar, it's because they were curious. People without the right avenues, wrote Ken Grossman, founder of the Sierra Nevada Beer Company, are troublemakers, and this line is narrower than we realize. More than a handful of podcast guests said that curiosity is really fun. It's like hunting Easter eggs, said Wes Gray. 
Curiosity is what Joe Pita did as part of his rehab. Pita was hit by a bus in New York City and lost his job soon after that. To make his rehab go a little faster, or at least more enjoyable, Pita started tracking how baseball teams evaluated talent and why some teams were more successful than the talent on the roster appeared. Walter Isaacson said a playful curiosity was what separates Da Vinci from you and me. Tyler Cowan compared being curious to like being Sherlock Holmes. These investigators of intrigue often suggest we go somewhere to be curious. Cowan said that books are a great way to learn about things, but to really taste a place, you have to go there. Jen Hyman said she got her business idea not in business classes at Harvard, but in her sister's apartment. Esther Duflo went to Africa and India to solve the questions her curiosity produced. But before you go, make sure you believe you're going to find something. This was central to Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One. You have to expect that there are secrets out there and that you can find them. Thomas Russo told Ted Seides to listen for things that surprise you. That's what happened during Peter's rehabilitation and deliberation. Why did a baseball team have that record? To channel Charlie Munger, it will also help us to know where not to go. Sometimes that means don't go to school. Ben Sass said that school is okay, but we need more options. Bloggers like James Altucher and Seth Godin agree. Alice Waters would agree too. She had a semester of studying abroad in France, but rather than go to class, she went to restaurants and inns and cafes and museums and concerts. And those things all contributed to her starting her restaurant, Ches Penise. Brian Grazer wrote a great book about curiosity and about what it means to be curious. Brad Gilbert started his own little book about it. Gilbert lost a tennis match to a guy he really didn't expect to lose to. Whereas Gilbert was in shape and playing well, this guy was not in as great shape and not playing well. But Gilbert wondered, how did he beat me? So he sat down to watch the guy's next match and he tracked his play, taking notes in a little black book. Gilbert realized that this guy had certain tendencies and he could do some things well and he couldn't do other things well. If Gilbert could track those things and then implement changes in his game, he would win. And it turns out the next time he played that opponent, he did win. After that, he expanded his note-taking to include even more players on tour, and this helped him coach up Andre Agassi when he became his coach rather than a player. Curiosity can sprout from novel notions. Ken Burns said he never picks films because he knows about the subject. He does the opposite. He picks things that he doesn't know about but wants to. Jason Calacanis advised pretending that you're a journalist to be more curious. What would an outsider say about this situation? The quality of curiosity may be quantity. Alton Brown called curiosity the greatest force in the universe. Kevin Delaney said that success comes from ideas. If I had the ability to cast magical spells, the first spell I'd learn to cast would be curiosity. Four. There were two big ideas about winning that came up this year, and neither of which was, all I do is win, 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 no matter what. The first was to win big and lose a little. Asymmetrical bets came up again and again. Jason Calacanis said in a few different podcasts that angel investing is a great idea for 5% of your net worth. 
Consider not just the financial upside, said Calacanis, but also the non-financial ones, such as networking and knowledge. All these things taken together, an angel investing can really be a wise investment. This advice was earned the hard way. When Jason was pitched for Airbnb, he passed, imagining that only broke college students and serial killers would use the service. Heirs of omission like this are the worst ones, said people like Bill Gurley and Mark Andreessen. Jerry Kaplan had to explain this idea to his father. When Kaplan decided to start a startup rather than follow a corporate path, his father assumed it was very risky. Kaplan had to explain that the company shouldered the liabilities, not himself. He was protected from the downside, but could embrace all of the upside. Chris Cole explained this idea using the example of George Lucas in Star Wars. Lucas took a lower-than-normal director's salary in exchange for future rights. Those future rights were at different levels. Merchandise sales were likely to some degree. Sequels were likely to a lesser degree. Video games, Disney-themed cruises, and 40 years of runtime were unlikely. But as each thing became less likely, it paid more. If Star Wars could live for 50 years, it would be very valuable. And it has been. This idea can apply to sports, too. Brad Gilbert, the tennis coach that was Andre Agassi's coach for the bulk of his successful career, advises amateur tennis players to not serve first. Lose the first set, and that's what normally happens. But if you break the first set, then you're up 1-0. If things hold for the next three sets, you end up with a 3-1 lead, a numerical and psychological edge. These small bets take a willingness to be wrong. The asymmetry only exists because large payouts are infrequent. The second kind of winning was to choose games you can win. You have to pick your battles. This is the Buffett and Munger strategy of embracing limited understanding and filing things into a too hard pile. In the 2017 NBA Finals, this came in the form of the Cleveland Cavaliers strategy. They couldn't beat the Warriors at their own game. They had to figure out a different way to play and ultimately failed at that. Another was from sports when Gilbert was on the tennis court. One problem amateurs have, he wrote, is that they play to look good rather than to win. Looking good means ripping winners down the line. Winning means returning serves to the center. The latter game is a game you can win, whereas the former game, looking really good on the tennis court, is much harder. Dwight Eisenhower knew this too, and so did his brother who told him to, quote, never get into a pissing match with a skunk. Ike's military history and experience directed him away from fighting in Vietnam and Korea. He understood that he had to choose his battles, and once he decided to pick a battle, he really had to go all in to win. In her work in poor countries, Esther Duflo conducted studies that could be repeatable. Rather than large sweeping changes, Duflo and her colleagues looked for small things that could make a difference. They found that gifted bed nets, incentivized vaccines, and efficient microcredit were all positive small changes that could cascade into large effects. That's winning. Both of these strategies, asymmetrical plays in favorable situations, require humility. In the first, there may be many small losses to bear before a big win. In the second, it means walking away from something because you can't do it well. Five. Subjects of books and podcasts often have an elevated level of self-awareness. 
As Richard Feynman put it, you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. In some ways, this encompassed the advice to follow your passion. Ken Burns said to do what innerly rejoices you. Many investors have said that investing only works if you enjoy the work. It's too easy now to get good service in anything, so your competitive advantage is really in areas where you're going to do the extra work because you enjoy it. Understanding yourself also means figuring out where your blind spots were. For Jason Calacanis, it was in failing to understand how Airbnb would be successful. For Scott Fearon, it was in what people wanted to eat in California. Fearon thought that because he was having some success as an investor, he could do anything well. So he opened up a restaurant in a certain part of California that really wasn't what people wanted. People wanted Applebee's or TGI Fridays, and Fearon wanted this kind of ethnic cuisine that he had seen in other places around the world. His restaurant failed because it was in the wrong area of the country and had the wrong customer base. He didn't realize what his blind spot was. For Alton Brown, it was not knowing that he would be as great in front of the camera as he was behind it. Not until someone else forced him to the other side was he able to realize that this blind spot existed. Another manifestation of blind spots is what we call soft spots. If you have a soft spot for something, it may be a weak spot in your decision making. Daryl Morey had to move away from his soft spot for big men who hustle and get rebounds. Marcus Lamonis had to move away from trying to fix people in the businesses he bought. Greg Popovich had to move away from his soft spot of one style of basketball. Self-understanding is a true mirror, not a carnival one. Brad Gilbert wrote that he sees too many amateur players get upset at themselves for missing shots. So what, writes Gilbert, you're not Pete Sampras. Jason Calacanis uses the poker metaphor for investing. Don't go full tilt, he warns. It isn't always easy to know what it's like and when to act one way or not. When we don't have a good internal understanding of who we are, the heat of the moment can lead to especially poor choices. Some people structure their decision-making away from that fire. Wesley Gray said to plan in System 2, alluding to Kahneman's personifications. Ray Dalio created layers of filters to reduce emotion and decision-making at his investment firm. Even though people have struggled with this forever, this idea of self-understanding is as timeless as people are, two ideas from modern times can help. Zero fucks and the identity footprint. Though rarely expressed in this way, many subjects don't care what other people think because they understand themselves. They know the goal better than anyone else, often as the founder, and work toward that. Equally important is the limited identity footprint. Suffering, said the Buddha, comes from attachment, or colloquially, disappointment is when reality doesn't meet your expectations. The idea is the same. Don't be attached to unimportant things. Knowing yourself is hard, but valuable. Six. In the same way that internal objectivity is really important, this next point, external objectivity, is important too. The most frequent citation of this comes in the form of tailwinds, that is, understanding what part of your success wasn't you. Wes Gray said that aside from the internet crash, any small cap value investor would have made money. Mike Lombardi applied tailwinds to football to tease out if a team was good or bad. 
absolute stats don't tell you anything unless you know about the tailwinds or headwinds in a situation. A football team, Lombardi says, can do really well, but you have to figure out did they do really well because they're good or because they played a bad team. Maya Ibrahim talked with Kara Swisher about how this relates to gender. Like a bull market or a bad opponent, men have had tailwinds in tech. The women trade stories of how the men have no idea that this is happening, and this can lead to really poor choices. If you don't know that you did well because it's a bull market, or because you had an advantage, or because there was a tailwind, it can lead to terrible choices down the line. Cliff Asnes and Ray Dalio both wondered about the other side of their trades. Who's buying when you're selling? That's a depth that neither of these successful investors have plumbed, but they really want to know what are the conditions that they're trading in, and how does that affect their decision making? This kind of thinking requires an almost out-of-body experience to not be tricked and instead be treated. Jason Calacanis said to think like a journalist, try to find the truth as you'd report it. Ken Burns said he tries to keep his thumb off the scale when he's making his movies. I don't know how much objective reality really exists, but it's still something to work towards. Matt Wallard said to try to make sure you're solution agnostic. Esther Duflo saw this in her work in India and Africa. Our views of the world, political, social, physical, influence our solutions. Our initial views are tainted. Instead, do what Wallard and Duflo do. Go into the world and see what works. Try to get that objective point of view. At the very least, understand and account for tailwinds as best you can.